I'm Casada Bullman. Today, my guest is Chef Kieran Hales. He joins us from Michigan, where currently he's chef and owner of Zingerman's Cornmen Farms, a 42-acre working farm and luxury event venue. Chef Hales grew up in a small village in England. His career began at the age of 13 when he was accepted into the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts. His journey to the present moment has been one full of abundance. He's cooked in 27 different countries, worked at Michelin star restaurants, cooked for the British royal family, and three U.S. presidents. We'll be discussing his time working with Paul Bocuse. Also, we'll touch on an idea from philosopher Alan Watts that life is not a journey. In fact, the destination doesn't even exist. Plus, we'll explore the idea of setting up your life based on your personal values and boundaries. So I'll start by asking, as we always do, Chef Hales, have you eaten yet? This could be a meal from today, or it could be a meal from any time in your life that you have a really great memory about. I like a recent food memory. Uh, so it's Father's Day. It's just been recently Father's Day. And my mother uh, used to make blueberry tort. And we were doing a bake sale about two weeks ago, and I made it for my son to do on our porch. And we sold out of it. I didn't even get a slice. And so I came home after work at about one in the morning and made myself a blueberry tort for my mum because I just wanted to travel back in time and be with my mum for that time. Uh, I had that with a cup of white needle tea, and it brought sunshine and happiness into my heart that day. Uh, it's a really nice way to travel back and be with my mom, who was an amazing cook. Uh, she really was. Um, the blueberry tort is really simple. It's like a frangipan crumble. It takes all of about 20 minutes to make and a whole hour to cook. It's ridiculously long, slow cook, uh, which gives you lots of time to drink lots of cups of tea, which always calms me down after a long day. Ah, oh, what a beautiful memory. And also this reminder that these food memories can be so nostalgic, can put you, like pull you in and pull you back to years ago. It's amazing what food can do. Yeah, I feel like uh, my entire career, uh, why I'm in the industry is to travel back to my childhood. I ran away from it as quickly as I could early in my life. Uh, got out of that village, got away from uh, my small home cooked meals, tried to travel the world. And then I spent the rest of my life trying to get back there. Um, I probably cook more of my home cooked meals than anything else right now. In the restaurant, uh, when we do special dinners, when we do weddings, uh, I try to take them back to eating with my mother at our little table in that village. Mm. Well, it's a perfect introduction because we're going to start off on your early life. So as you mentioned, you grew up in a very small village in England. Only 300 people live there. You were the only child in your year at the three-room schoolhouse that you attended. Yep. During that time, your father passes away. At the age of 13, you're accepted into the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts. And then for the next few years, you're working in kitchens in England and France and really beyond. All of that describes life-changing events of great magnitude at a very young age and at a formative time in your life. You dealt with death, leaving your small village, setting out to create a career for yourself. So I'd love for you to take us all back to that moment, to that time in your life, and describe 
how you were processing so many changes all at once. It's funny to think back because I've now got a nine-year-old. So four years from now, imagining my uh, son Henry going off to New York City to live alone boggles my brain that that even happened. Um, I think for me, the processing of it, uh, when I left, uh, joined uh, the Royal Academy, went to London to work, worked out in France in Port Bacuse, I was seeking that father figure. As uh, strange as it is now to think of it, it definitely wasn't at the time. And head chefs are great at that. They are dysfunctional human beings. <laughs> they can be abusive relationships. They can be happy relationships, incredible highs, incredible lows. And I think that uh, as I left my village, I went uh, to join the industry. That was definitely some of what I was seeking. Uh, and I got a really good fix really quickly. Uh, I love discipline. Uh, I, I joke about it, but if you shout at me, you get a highly quick response and I will jump at it and it can be anyone. It doesn't hurt me. Uh, it's been beaten out of me in those early years. I definitely joined the industry uh, in the last uh, parts of the industry being pretty cruel burned hands, pans thrown at you. Uh, that was the tail end of that. Um, not a good thing. Definitely don't do it. It's not something I would condone, but it definitely put a mark on my life. Uh, made me not want to be that person. Made me a kinder, happier person in the kitchen. But uh, it was a tough time in that. But uh, it fulfilled that need of that father figure. Um, I had been a classically trained bassoonist before that. And so, really useful. Uh, I can teach you the bassoon if you would like. Somehow I have a teaching degree at a really young age. I went to a special school for it. And my home economics teacher had recommended I applied for the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts. Uh, she knew somebody who knew somebody. Uh, I went up with no expectation. And this was um, after my father had passed away. It gave me the opportunity uh, to get out of that village, get out of that environment that I was in. I think my mother wanted me to as much as she wanted to hold on to me. She wanted me to be out there. Um, really opportunistic. I didn't have any special culinary skills. I, I joke about it, but like we did a little practical test. We did an interview. I have no idea what they saw in me because I, I could cook. My mother was a really amazing cook, um, but I definitely had no special skills at 13 standing in a kitchen with a full chef's knife. <laughs> Well, you have lived and cooked in more countries than I have ever been to. 27 different countries. And we, we, we don't take that lightly. I mean, I don't think anyone should. 27 different countries is an awful lot of countries. And in a previous interview, you said, quote, it was a really fun experience, but it was exhausting between the constant traveling and the work hours. I'd love for you to dive a little deeper here. Did you do all of this traveling during your 20s? What was the average length of stay at each restaurant? Take us back to the moment you graduate until you start to slow down a bit. Yeah, I think uh, what's interesting, I did a modern apprenticeship. So uh, I was really lucky. Didn't have to pay to go to school. They paid me. Uh, I would be at a London restaurant uh, called Cote d'Argent. Stephen Goodlad, a really great Yorkshireman of a chef. I'd spend a year there. Then I'd go spend three months uh, in Bournemouth and Poole College in England. And we'd cram a year's worth of studies into three months. And then I'd go uh, over to France, be in Paul Bacuse's restaurant for a year, do exactly the same thing uh, again, college, back to London, back to college, back to Paul Bacuse's restaurant. Um, it was 
really fun, super naive about what was going on. I used to travel with like eight bags. I'd have like four rollers, a bag on the front, bag on the back, two little bags as well. I looked like a, a mule going over the mountains. Uh, I traveled with everything. I mean, every cookbook anyone had ever given me, any chef's knives. Super weird how I could easily travel with chef knives back then. It wasn't a problem. Uh, I think that uh, that time uh, was driven by trying to be older than I was. Um, if you can imagine being a chef, you got breaks when you went smoking and we all socialized in a pub. Uh, I was still 13. Uh, I got snuck into those pubs. Uh, I didn't ever take up smoking. My father was a really heavy smoker. I never had the desire to. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, not even tried one. Um, so I used to take non-cigarette breaks and stand and everyone to get passive smoking. I guess it was a way to get the break. Uh, I think for me, uh, that travel was instigated by what existed back then, which was the old boys club. Uh, the executive head chef, the head chef, uh, the owner would say, hey, Kieran, it's time for you to go here. We're going to exchange you with this chef. I'm going to send you here. Uh, the average time is really different. Uh, I don't think there is one. To say I was somewhere for three months is true. Sometimes I'd be there for a month and I'd work with a fish chef. And I was learning how to work with John Dory. Uh, it's a really picky fish to debone. It's got a very weird rib cage. Uh, I remember doing that in a small restaurant in the south of France. I remember going to Tantris restaurant in Germany and... This guy had this, has this beautiful, doesn't, didn't, does still have this beautiful restaurant, huge space kitchen, orange in there, it's bright colors. And I was in there and we were doing so much butchery in there that I'd never done before. Um, and so a head chef would send you and they were trying to progress you through your career. And that small group at the top end of our industry would send you somewhere else to go learn something. Um, I never applied for a job in my life. Uh, it's really weird. I've not really interviewed. I just got sent somewhere. The closest thing I've ever had was when I came here for my green card and my H1B visa before that. Uh, that's the closest thing to an interview I've ever done in my life. Um, it sounds really nice, but it was so stressful. I could tell you I lived in 27 countries. I experienced so little of them. I would get up in the morning, I'd be in the restaurant, I'd leave, I'd go to a bar or a pub, and then I'd go home, sleep, rinse and repeat. And we would do that at least five or six days a week. On the seventh day, I'd either sleep or I'd go do something foodie. So I'd go work at a farm, I'd go out on a day boat, I'd spend time uh, at a slaughterhouse. I once spent time on a windmill and a water mill. I was really in, right? I was 100% in, I wanted it all. I wanted every piece of information I could gather. I wanted to open my own Michelin star restaurant. I wanted to know be known as a chef that was known by the chefs. I couldn't care about the public. I just wanted to be known by them. I wanted to be respected by my father figures that I had grown to love and adore through that time. Um, but it was really tiring. I traveled so much. It was normal that I was getting on planes, trains, automobiles, boats on a regular. I had to do my uh, green card interview when I came here the last time and they were like, anywhere you haven't lived, for uh, less than two years, I'm like, I can't answer that. Like, it would be everywhere. And I can't remember the address where I lived in, you know, Barcelona in, France, in uh, Spain back then. I have no idea what that address is. I haven't recorded it. It was pre really the digital world as far as right. keeping that stuff safe. It was scraps of paper. Um, so I don't know. I, I missed being around family. I ran away from the family a little bit. I wanted to get away from everyone. Um, when I eventually came, 
to travel, to be in the US permanently. It was a way to be closer. My sister, strangely, was in uh, Celine, which is around the corner where we are now. And I wanted to be closer. And so I eventually moved to Maine and then came to Michigan after that. Yeah. What a story. Well, while in France, you worked with Paul Bocuse. And I want to spend some time here to soak in that entire experience. It's a profound experience. He's just this legend. So how did you get in the door? And what is the single most impactful idea that you learned from him? I got in the door, no idea. I was so young, right? Like it was part of the academy. They would send you to these places and you got in through the back door with a chef handshake and in um, to say, I cooked in the restaurant when Paul Bocuse was there. It's true. He was still working in the kitchen. Uh, he hadn't stepped away to the front like he did in the last latter end of the years. Uh, so he'd be in there on a regular basis. Uh, it is not an underestimation of who he was. He is the granddaddy of French culinary food. Um, he's an amazing human being, was an amazing human being, still is an amazing human being. Uh, his kindness in those kitchens was legendary. Um, his kitchen was not big. Uh, I think it wasn't fancy in the way they were uh, as you go to other restaurants nowadays. It was built inside uh, an old hotel building, had a spirally staircase that was up. The waiters had to walk down with their really heavy silver trays in there. Uh, I got promoted to the dish tank on a regular basis when we were busy. Um, he used to love promoting people into the dish tank. I remember cleaning copper pots uh, with lemon juice on a regular basis that we never used, that were just hanging around. Um, it was really fun. I don't speak many languages and it might be really funny that I've lived in 27 countries. My linguistic skills are terrible. I can order drinks, know what I'm being shouted at, know most of the meats and fishes and vegetables, but that's about it. And so I think what I took from him uh, was his act of kindness. Uh, my business partner that I work with right now makes fun of me because I like to hug everyone and during COVID you're not allowed to hug anyone. Uh, Paul Bacuse would hug you and I don't think people know that. Like he was a kind fatherly figure. Um, he knew who he was. He was very true to what he wanted to do. He wanted to raise up great culinary foods of France and he did them with simple elegance. Uh, one thing he always used to get assessed for um, uh, when he would get assessed for his three Michelin stars was um, his place or sole that would be cooked with bernois at sauce, with capers, uh, his baby shrimp on there, lemon juice. I mean, we're talking really simple, but it was perfect. And I think seeking perfection is very hard. Um, I changed my career into the, you know, the wedding industry, the private event industry, because it's much easier. Getting perfect every day in a restaurant is exhausting it's tiresome it's challenging um, getting the right people in the seats to be enjoying it at the same time is really hard and he could do that and he did it without the rage without the anger i worked in a lot of different uh, michelin star restaurants from one to three um, his kitchen wasn't quiet it wasn't silent i think some people think that's what michelin star restaurants are um, it wasn't abusive it was it was not stressful but it was tough like it wasn't, I went in there stressed. We were ready. We knew what we had to do. We knew our mise en place was gonna be. We knew what was expected of us. We knew what we had uh, to do that day. Um, it was really hard, <laughs> but stress wasn't the right word. It was tough. It was difficult, 
Um, but the stress wasn't there. And I think he did that in bucket loads by being present. Um, he touched the food every day. He was present with it every day when he was there. And he loved being with the guest. And I think later in my life, I took that, that as a chef, we sometimes hide away in the background and we don't uh, come out. Uh, I found a love for that later in my life. Uh, wanting to talk to the guests. Uh, I joke that I came to the US because uh, the clientele is a little more loving and compassionate about wanting to hear from the chef. As a European, most European uh, customers are like, yeah, I know that, I'm good, I don't need to talk to you. Over here, um, as a group of people, the Americans love to like keep hearing the same thing. I could tell the same story 20 times and they still love it. And you know what? I'm down for that. Um, I would say the other thing from him uh, was his continued kindness afterwards. Um, I rang him up maybe five, six years later. Um, I'd become uh, a head chef uh, at a Michelin star restaurant and we chatted about things, about staffing. It's always the hardest thing. It's not about the food. I know that sounds terrible from a chef, but finding the right staff, how to manage the right staff in that situation. Um, and his kitchen wasn't abusive. And that was, I mean, I come from those at the beginning of my career and his was not. It was the polar opposite of it. And that went from every person that worked in there. Because daily I was working with senior chef to parties. I was working junior sous chefs, sous chefs the head chef. I wasn't working with Paul Bacuse on my line every day, but his kindness bled down to every single one of those. And that's not true. You know, that person steps away and the abuse can come back. That is not what happened in his kitchen. You were a head chef in a Michelin star restaurant. What was that like? Horrible. <laughs> stressful. That definitely was stressful. Uh, I think um, uh, Marco Pierre White when he handed them back was like yep don't want these anymore they're awful mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I don't want them anymore <laughs> I wouldn't want them anymore I think it's changed to uh, I don't know how you feel about it but the industry has changed of what a Michelin star means mm -hmm. uh, back when I started in the uh, early 90s it was still very special very very special um, it has become a little different. I still think the Michelin star restaurants I eat in, and I've got the privilege of eating in quite a few, uh, not that far back in my life. Uh, we did a wedding in Austria a while ago uh, in Guntersdorf, and we ate in one uh, in Vienna, two Michelin star restaurants. It is, it's not what it was. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I thought that's what I wanted to do, and I think that's when I started to change, uh, mm. that I wanted to cook food that made me happy, that connected with people and what it was. It wasn't the big change for me, but it was the start of it. I think for me, the stress that you can put on other people because of your stress and you can't put it away in that situation is really hard. I think what people might not understand is when you get it, it's not getting it is the hard thing, it's holding on to it. Um, holding on to that thing is it's like putting water in a sieve. It's really hard and you just keep catching all the other things. Um, it can become like keeping balls in the air constantly. It's exhausting. Um, on a daily basis, you are 100% in there. Um, it had serious repercussions for my life outside of work. And my life outside of work is my life in work. Uh, it has been all my life. It's There isn't a big separation, but it really closed off the doors to the outside. And so, um, it's something that's respected or thought to be respected. I think that it can do a lot more harm, especially nowadays, than it did 
do good back in the day of where it is. It was definitely an old boys club back in the day as well of how you got them. You had to be on the right people and know the right people and what mm. it was. Uh, and that's definitely changed uh, now, which is good. Um, I think that the guides of where we eat and what we know has been much more open to the world with the way that we can find information on restaurants and what's going on in there. Back then, there was a very limited way to find what was good or bad. I mean, it's fun that it was it was a, a way that this tire company was trying to get you to go further out into the backwash of France, right? Like, it wasn't even anywhere else. They wanted you to get to nowhere. I ate at a, a funny Michelin-style restaurant. I can't even remember what it is, which is terrible. My mind's really adult at this point. I've got, like, before children and after children. Uh-huh. All I can remember is after the kids were born. But I ate in a place called in Chateau Neuf de Pape, and it was this super simple restaurant. It was a one Michelin-style restaurant, all the main courses were exactly the same. So in the dead center of the plate was whatever the protein was, meat, fish, or anything else. But the vegetables were all the same. We were a group of eight people. We all ordered different things. And it all came exactly the same except for the protein and the sauce. And my brain was like, what? And uh, I mean, it was perfect, right? But like, what an odd experience, because that's not what you expect. And I think that was the 90s, right? It was a little different then than where we are now, where it's got to be this very elaborate thing. Uh, I like the idea of that centered perfection, and it doesn't have to be a lot of creativity of sugar clouds and smoke clouds and uh, spending time with... I mean, I was around when we did all the foam guns of everything. Everything had to be in a foam gun. If it wasn't in a foam gun, you weren't really trying anymore. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I will rattle on for a while now. <laughs> no, it's it's fascinating to hear and to remember the difference. You're right. It's changed massively. And it's really, it's interesting that you mentioned um, that even a few years ago when you dined in Europe, which I've dined in Europe in the last couple of years at Michelin star restaurants, but I don't have the experience that you have as a comparison to earlier. So I just assumed that U.S., maybe we dumbed it down, but Europe, it was still the real deal. But that's interesting, that perspective of yours. It's a perspective, right? Uh, I haven't eaten that many. I've eaten quite a few, but not that many. It has started to get dumbed down. And I, it's sad because it was the, it's the antithesis. It's where you want to go. Like it's the 0.01% of this, of our industry. Mm-hmm. And um, there's nothing that's come along that's replaced it. There's no other guide of what that is. Um, I think now it's much more about being a celebrity and known mm-hmm. what it is. Uh, I think I said earlier that I wanted to be known by the chefs. Um, me, I'm much happier that I get known by the food and the memories that people now get from my food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked about eating my mom's blueberry tort. I love it that someone at a wedding that we have here or an event that we have here 20 years from now is cooking that for their kid on their 20th birthday or something like that is way more impactful than knowing my name. Um, I'm not a religious guy. So the idea how I live on after I passed away is that my name gets brought up alongside a thing. And so that might be something I've cooked, a task, a thing that I've done. I, I make a story about my grandfather. He would drill holes in walls, but he put a little envelope underneath with a piece of tape to catch the dust. And every time I tell that story to someone, his name is Albert Whitworth. 
he was an electrical engineer. He used to repair printing presses in Fleet Street. Albert Whitworth lives on. And I've told that story to lots of people in my life because I'm like, hey, if you're ever hanging a picture, do this. And um, somebody sent me maybe eight, nine years ago, they moved into their house, they were hanging a picture, and they said, Albert Whitworth's helping me. And like how they remembered his name. I mean, it's a really good name to remember. Don't get me wrong. Albert Whitworth, very Britishish name to go. Um, but like that, that's the moment he lives on. There's probably a handful of people that remember my grandfather uh, left on this planet. And for that moment, this random person got to remember them. It's pretty cool. Well, that's very cool. And I'm glad that he's living on in this podcast now. There you go. I like that. Well, now they've created little dust catchers that they sell. In, he could have been a millionaire. He had a dream. <laughs> he missed his moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get to a point in your career where you have lots of experience, but there's something missing. In a previous interview, you say, quote, I worked in a lot of one, two, and three Michelin star restaurants, so I knew how to make beautiful food, cook it really well, but the passion behind the food was missing, the why I really wanted to do it. So you go back to the UK, take a rather large cut in pay, and work at a small independent restaurant. You were on a track that was moving forward. Another chef might have stayed on that track instead of leaving money on the table and taking what some might consider the scary path of the unknown. How did you know that this path was the right one for you? I didn't. <laughs> I, uh, I know, right? Like, it's funny. My entire life, I'm like, I don't know, this looks like a good idea. Um, I was, I was on that track. I was going to live my dream. I was heading there. And we were doing a duck dish at the restaurant I was at. And I couldn't tell you where, what farm it came from. I didn't know anything about the farm. I knew it was the best duck we could buy. I knew it was really great. Uh, I couldn't tell you why the dish was special, other than it was beautiful and tasted great. And I was talking to another chef that we were working with, and we both had this like epiphany of like, what the heck are we doing? Like this isn't, this isn't what this is meant to be. Uh, the core of being a chef is not that. Um, and it broke me. <laughs> I mean, I had an emotional break at that moment, and uh, it didn't matter all that what had come before. Uh, I turned a page. I just said about the kids, and you know, there's. BC before children, after children. That was a moment for me culinary wise. After that moment, I couldn't do anything else. And uh, I left having cooked for three presidents really soon. Uh, and I went and worked for a very small independent fish restaurant. Uh, the guy that ran it was amazing. Uh, he'd worked with Ryan uh, uh, Stein down in Cornwall, um, really great fish chef. He is a little bit of a TV celebrity in the UK. I don't know if he ever made it over here, um, but he left, opened his own little fish restaurant in Burnham Market. It was a wealthy part of England. It was kind of where Londoners went to have their summer homes of sorts. I mean, it's England, so let's not be clear about how summery the summer home is, but it's very cute. Uh, it's very Englishy, thatch roofs, slate roofs, old pubs. Um, and yeah, I took a very large pay cut. Money wasn't important. I was single-ish. Uh, I definitely 
had no aspirations of buying a house or anything. I'd put lots of money away. Uh, I've always been pretty good at saving my money. The very first chef I worked for with, Stephen Goodlad, had told me that I needed to put 30% of my wage away every year, no matter what, and I did that from the beginning. Uh, good on him. He, he changed my financial future in that way, uh, gave me the opportunity to buy into where I am now. Um, but he said that you should always have at least three years of your salary your current salary is set in the bank so you can do whatever you want because life's too short. Uh, you've got to do now what is good for you now and not worry about anything else. And so we, I, me and my friend had, had that realization and I had to get out, I had to go connect. And this small fish restaurant, I maybe didn't know it when I hired in there. Um, no one would have, like it wasn't somewhere chefs went to work. You didn't leave London and go to that spot. Um, I got the opportunity to have these old guys with wheelbarrows come to the back door with vegetables. Day boats would bring fish that was still in its rigor mortis. So you had to wait for it to settle down. Um, we cooked amazing food. He had a tandoori oven in there. Uh, first time I'd used the tandoori oven in the United Kingdom. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And this very quaint English part, you know, English as much as you want, quintessentially British. And we're cooking on skewers, doing naan breads on the side of it. Wow. Um, it was it was really uplifting. I lived in the house above it, <laughs> so I stayed on property. Uh, rent was cheap in that world. Um, it was wonderful. I think for me, the hardest thing was with that place is I was done. I was like, cool, can I buy in? I'm ready. Like, this is it. I've found Nirvana. I'm here. Let's go. And I couldn't. Uh, and I found that door closed at me on many a time in Europe. I think that finding somewhere where you could buy them was really hard, but yeah, it was glorious. I gotta tell you, uh, money was not the problem. Uh, I can tell you that concerns about going back to the industry, I could just look like I'd taken a year break if I, if I didn't like it. I could go right back, uh, the top end of our industry where you have been a head chef. Even if I demoted myself to a junior sewer or sue, I would have been okay. Like I could have got back pretty quickly. This made me so happy. Uh, and I think I have held on to that from that point onwards. Um, my friend, uh, who I don't talk to because he's in Australia very often other than uh, through Facebook or other things, has a restaurant in Australia and does really simple uh, Yorkshire food <laughs> in Australia, which is just fun. We both kind of cook up our mother's and father's foods from when we were kids. And that's what we do now. And I think that's kind of lovely. Um, yeah, that was, that was that big change. I would recommend anyone to try it because if you're heading in that direction, mm. it is a door you should definitely go look through. Um, you might not want it. That's cool. Everyone's got their own journey they want to be on. Um, but I think there is a lot of things we should try and not pass up on. And this mm. was a huge awakening for me um, I could see myself being married having kids owning a house settling down as a chef in these other places mm -hmm. no like relationships were hard enough and you usually had a slightly dysfunctional relationship with somebody you worked with which mm -hmm. was never good um, <laughs> uh, it, the relationships were good it just didn't always work out at the end of the relationship um, but oh it changed my outlook on the rest of my life um I'd said I wanted to retire at 40. Uh, this felt like I could do this till the day I died. Like I could do this forever. And that's where I'm heading now. 
Wow. So during this time, this same time, you kind of touched on it already that you said, listen, I'm all in. Can I buy into this place? This is great. During this time, while you're back in England working at this place, you have another epiphany that you want to be an owner. Tell me about this time in your life. I, th- I think that you said you were single. I'm just trying to get w- what stage of life you're in. Are you in a relationship? Are you hyper-focused on the next chapter? It seems like there's this almost like a rebirth and you're just... It, well, it's this truly introspective time in your life, right? But again, I kind of, I see you there and I draw parallels where you're taking on again, this massive change. Like when you were 13, it's this reawakening. I, uh, relationships, I was in and out of them. Uh, definitely had them. Um, they would last a decent amount of time. I am very, I'm one of those people that falls deeply in love instantaneously. I'll write on books and send you cookbooks and gifts and like I'm all in. What, day one, all in. Scary Kieran turns up at that relationship. Um, and usually scare them off within about six months was what I was doing back then. Uh, my passion would come through in that form. Um, I, it was not a big part of my life being in relationships or seeing this that important. Um, it always seemed to happen rather than I was trying to. Um, as far as wanting to be an owner, it came from that um, weird sense of legacy. Uh, having lost my father, not being religious, um, I wanted to be remembered. I didn't want to be left behind, right? And my father, my grandfather, I can tell you a cute story about my grandfather. I knew my dad till I was 13, then he was gone. I barely knew him. Like the memories of the first five years are nothing. The memories from like five to 13 are limited. Uh, Both my parents worked. I didn't hang out with them that much. Uh, He wasn't somebody who went out and played soccer with you or you were uh, out doing some kind of different things with him, working on the car or something like that. That was not my father. He was British. He was refrained. He would keep it all to himself. Um, So I didn't want to be forgotten and not in a rude way. I got to say my dad is probably the most forgotten person in my history of somebody I know there's not a lot of him out there Um, a lot of the people he grew up with people that came to his wedding have all passed away as well and I wanted something that was left after I passed on not for me but that I had a presence or a substantive change on people and I didn't feel like I could do that just being somebody who works somewhere and I also been working for the the man for a really long time I had picked up other people's restaurants, other people's owners, I'd brought them up to a really good place and I felt like I wasn't getting my full dues. I was known, my name was out there, but not really. The money was fine, but not really. Um, I wasn't building any kind of generational wealth. My sister had had kids. Um, I was trying to help my sister. She was um, out in uh, Michigan at that point and they were going to like a Steiner school and I wanted to try to help my mother to help them. My mother would go out there a lot to travel and I didn't see a way to do that in my current financial situation where I was. I had money in the bank and that was good. I wasn't allowed to touch that. Stephen Goodlad had told me, never allowed to touch that unless it comes to a crisis. And so I wanted to do something that was going to be there, you know, for a hundred years, 200 years. Mm. Um, and I've written some visions, the business that I'm in now, 
that have a hundred year vision, which is just funny. You write a vision past the point you're definitely going to be dead. Right? I am 100% dead. It's not my kid's place. It's not something else, but what's lasting that has gone past you and into another generation. And I think that is very satisfying. Um, I think uh, knowing that there's an inevitability of death is really liberating. I love it. Like I've experienced it a lot uh, in my life uh, of people passing. It isn't something scary. I'm happy to talk about my father and how he passed away. I'm happy to talk about my mother and how she passed away. They are moments in my life that have made me who I am. I would never have come to the US, never met my wife, never had my two boys. So my, both my parents passing away was a good thing. And I mean that in a loving, passionate way that I would love to see them and be with them right now. But I would not be here today without it. And I think uh, that pushes you to want to have something that helps that next generation, that next group of people that you have moved people or um, communities on into a better place. Mm. Beautiful. Well, in 2008, you arrive here in the U.S. and join Zingerman's to pursue being an entrepreneur. You open Zingerman's Cornman Farms, a 42-acre and farm, and also a special events venue. And you guys are 20 minutes from downtown Ann Arbor, Michigan. The property has working pastures, a chef's garden, a restored barn, and a farmhouse. After working in 27 different countries and countless restaurants, what is the most rewarding thing for you these days when it comes to work? My kids know where I am. They know what I'm doing. When I miss a soccer game, when I don't get to a basketball training or I'm out late, they actually know where I am. They've been here. They've hung out with me. Uh, when schools close because of water mains burst, they come to the farm and they literally sit on the counter. Uh, I'll make them work. There's no working rela- uh, uh, regulations around kids if they're yours and you own the business. So oh. I can work them for hours. Uh, they can't complain. Don't have to pay them. Nothing. No, but like they know what I do. And I think so many of us have parents or had parents uh, and you didn't really know what they were up to and why. When I'm not there, they know I'm helping somebody have that, one of the top five special moments in their lives. I'm creating food for people that makes them happy. I'm making food from their histories. Um, I think that's really very liberating when this industry still pulls me away from my family more than I would like. I would love to be at home all the time, but I also love what I do. And so to have some kind of give and take from that is great. Um, I. I love that. Like, we have our kids mess around in the garden. I've got them running up and down on carts that we uh, move tables and chairs around the property with. They've been chased by the bees. We had an Easter thing one year, and my oldest kid, he was probably five at the time, just ran into our pond, just fully clothed, no idea why. Just like, and those are really, they're fun memories for the business, they're fun memories for the people around us. When Henry was born, my first. And I'm sorry, Owen, I talk about Henry way too much. So if you listen to this later in life, I'm sorry, Owen, I love you lots. But Henry, when he was born, was when we opened the farm. And so I became a brand new dad, brand new business owner. And I used to have him with me and we would do wedding tours before the place was fully finished. And that is amazing. Like he's, when I'm like, how old's my business? I'm like, how old's my son? 
same thing. And that is really an amazing thing. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's the, the simplest answer every day. Every day my kids get to know where I am and what I'm doing. That is a great thing. That is amazing. Well, personally, I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. British philosopher Alan Watts believes that life should not be considered a journey because the end is not the primary goal. I think Watts and I basically see idea, eye to eye. It's the word journey that we may differ on, however literal we decide to take that word. But his idea is that life is like music. The doing or playing is more important than reaching the end. The general takeaway is that life is a gift. Live in the moment. Enjoy it. Playing brings us back to the present moment. You have children, so I imagine that playing is something you do often. You have lived such a full life in many places around the world. Do you look at your life and have a primary goal, or do you look at all the paths that led you to the present moment, or do you take a hybrid approach when you think about life? Yeah, this is where I'll ask all the people who are listening to this, who are Zygmunt's folks, turn off, stop listening. Um, we write visions, right? We write a far point. You pick a point in the future and you write down, what does it look like? And that's cool. I'm down with it. I write them. I've written them. Uh, Ari, uh, co-founder of Zingerman's, knows I struggled with it. Uh, I'm not the greatest writer. My spelling and grammar is kind of terrible. Um, you have to close one eye and hold the piece of paper far away and you kind of understand what I'm trying to say when you read it like that. Um, I like that things can change. I don't like putting a solid end anywhere. And so I try to write the most generalistic, it's going to be somewhat like this, there's going to be these kind of things out there. Um, but COVID changed how I looked at my business. My kids have changed how I looked at my business. Having a second child really changed how I looked at my business. Um, the people that come through, it is very hard to pick an end point. I don't have a retirement moment. I don't have a, the farm must look like this one day. I must have achieved these things to be happy. Uh, I definitely more of in the moment. It probably drives my business partner, Tabitha, a little crazy. Uh, I love taking chances and trying new things. Um, I'm a big proponent of uh, Toyota Lean Principles, continuous improvement. Um, it's a way to that they do to change the pressing plants uh, in car industries. And they used to take month, or it was like a month and a half to change the machinery to change pressing plants. I'm really going off on a tangent now. Everyone will come and join me in about three minutes when I finish this. But they, they made a system that they could change that in a day. And I was like, what? How do you do something that takes a month and a half and change it in a day? And it was through constant trial and error, and error being the optimum way. In our industry, we want to go for perfection. We want perfect. We don't want failure. We don't want mistakes. You learn way more in a mistake, right? And so now with people cooking in the kitchen, uh, there's Brennan who's in our kitchen right now. When he makes a mistake, it eats him up. He gets really upset. That is the best part of my day. I'm like, look what we learned. We're not doing that again. Like doing it perfect teaches you very, very little. Uh, and so there's uh, like the Japanese mindset of constant failure mm. is such a good way to learn. And so I, it makes that side of that piece makes me really happy. Uh, and that makes me live in the moment because I'm not trying to achieve an end goal because the failures can take me down a really different route. Uh, we've tried lots of things at the farm that haven't worked. And 
They bring me way more joy than the things that did work. They make for way better stories to tell people than the good stuff. And what a much better story and way to teach your kids and people around you than always seeking perfection. And I think that's funny because my business partner loves perfect. She loves setting that table perfectly, loves having the perfect service. And I love throwing a wrench in it and trying something that I might even know is not going to work, right? But like, I've never tried it. Um, We once had a farmer out here, Mark Beowulf, and he would tell us that he only gets once a season to grow potatoes. And I've never thought of it like that, right? As a chef, I cook potatoes thousands of times a year. He gets one season to grow them and he gets one season to try something new. Now he might try different rows and maybe does five things in a year. That is a very limited learning cycle. Me, what an opportune person I have to have all these multiple opportunities to try something new every day, every dish, every time. That is a gift and like, knowing that you're not going to accept what you think is perfect, that it can still be better and less stressful. We try to work on a way that our staff don't have to work as hard. The tasks we don't like to do in kitchens, the cleaning, the scrubbing, the kneading of bread, the whatever that you personally don't love. I love kneading past the dough and rolling. I could do it till the cows come home. There are some of our staff that that's not their thing. So how do I make that as easy as I can with you while keeping the quality where we want to be? And those things are joyous i i mean hopefully it comes across that way like failure is the funnest thing that i do right now and i think telling my 20 year old self that i would, couldn't understand that that has completely changed now um i'm willing to take risks with money i'm willing to take risks with situations i don't want to ruin any person's wedding day or a special event that they have with us but i want to try something new with them i want to attempt the unknown and think that that is something hopefully that people will remember from me is my chaos. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're in an exciting time of your life where you've reached that after all your experience. It, you know, you need life experience to even get to that point. And that freedom that you have, how amazing. I'm excited for you. <laughs> so as a business owner, and a father and a husband, you're pulled in many directions. Being connected to your core is important on a daily basis. That dictates what you dedicate time and energy to. Whether you're aware or not, the choices you make each day set the course of your life. If you think about a typical week in your life, what are your personal values or boundaries that you generally follow to keep everything in order, personally, professionally, or both? God, I don't know. I read this and I'm like, I got nothing, right? I don't know what the boundary is. They are one in the same, my family. Um, I think that the thing I'm not as good at is looking after me and taking care of myself. I take care of myself by taking care of other people. I'm an Aquarian. I was born in February and so I'm a water carrier. Uh, I don't hold a lot of tact in that, but it seems to make sense when people describe that person. I derive a lot of joy in helping and doing things for other people. Uh, and that's true for my kids, my wife, and people I work with. I will give you the shirt off my back, the money out of my bank account. It's not important. You need it, let's go help you. Uh, my business partner, again, would repeat that I don't have a lot of boundaries when it comes to that. I can get called in for all kinds of things. I, as a owner now, and probably 
10 years before that, I learned how to repair AC units, how to repair refrigerator. I mean, as a chef, you got to learn that stuff because that maintenance guy ain't getting there quick enough. He just isn't coming. You got to change those thermocouples. You've got to be able to change out grease traps. It's just real. And um, I think that the boundaries I don't have is more about myself and taking care of me. Uh, and I think I'm okay with it because I feel like this is my true self in what I'm doing. And it does bring me joy, but there are days it does not. There are days that I can get really down, just like, what am I doing? I, we haven't gone on vacation this year. We haven't gone and done this thing with the kids. I haven't seen a football game in the last X number of times with the kids. And those boundaries can hurt, and I get a little bit of whiplash is probably a true statement. And a typical week is just very different in um, the event business or wedding business that I'm in now versus the restaurant business. Uh, we've had weeks where uh, we've cooked for six to 800 people in that week. And then there's weeks where I cook for 35 people. The 35 people weeks are really fun. <laughs> They're great. Uh, and it's not that the 800 are bad because they give you the rush of being on a hotline, working your, your tail off. And then the 35, you get to do all the crazy stuff. Um, and there's a little swings and roundabouts in that. I think the variety of my day, working on irrigation in the farm, trying to fix plants that aren't being healthy, helping the line cook learn, trying to figure out a way to move tables around the property more easily, fixing a pressure valve that's gone on a boost the heater. That's happening when I finish doing this uh, podcast with you because one of the pressure valves is gone and I'm the one who's going to go fix it. It's fun. I, I don't want a regular day. Um, I sure would like to figure out how to be away from my business for more than a few hours um, and I think that's going to come from having more people and being more comfortable and having more of those failures um, I know I'm not really answering the question I'm giving you a real politician's answering no you are it. you know what my, my interpretation of you and what you're describing is that you had such a intense life for so long. You were a head chef in a Michelin restaurant. You, you know, you worked at all of these very intense environments. So for you, <laughs> boundaries are kind of like, uh, yeah, I'm living the great life right now. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I'm not working 110 hours in a week. Everything's good. Like, it's just not that bad. Uh, we joke about it. My wife used to be a restaurant manager before she, she does Zing Train now. So part of the Zingerman's community where she trains people um, for how we do things within Zingerman's. And she does it all over the country. Um, but we joke that like on her worst day in her current job, it's not even close to her best day in the restaurant industry. And it's not like, and I, I'm super privileged. I'm not in the restaurant industry. I don't have to keep up with the Joneses. I really don't. Like, I don't have to reinvent myself. We can be who we are as the farm now forever. Whereas a restaurant, you get like eight, nine years, and then you got to like flip it, repaint it, do the whole thing again. And like, mm -hmm. that is hard. And like, respect to anyone doing that because it is hard. And I think for me, um, that change of the chaos that is my current situation is still so easy on the hardest of days and some days are really hard and you'll see me and I my hair is going to turn white real quick from some of the things that we deal with but still it's not the other yeah absolutely what does your ideal future look like <laughs> that's a great question uh, trying not to think too far um, and just think a little closer um, I want to make my boys to grow up to figure out what they want to do 
and really figure out what they want to do. I want to put no pressure on them. I don't want them to feel like they have to do any specific thing and that everything is okay as a career choice or a life choice or what they want to do. And that's really hard. Um, one of the things we do within Zingman's is we ask you to write a vision about what you want. So much of what we want is driven by other people and not by ourselves. And sitting down and thinking about what you personally, individually really want, when you take everything else away, is really hard. And so to instill it in my kids is really tough. Um, I think in the near future, I want to find a way that my business doesn't need me here as much. I think that I want to be able to be at home a little bit more. Um, it's funny, my kid was having a tough day at school yesterday. This is a like everyday story for a parent. Um, and they, the kids were arguing at uh, camp about setting up a lemonade stand or a vegetable stand. And my son Henry wanted to play with this group who was going to do it and they weren't going to. And so he comes home and I sit with him. I'm like, well, what do you want to do? I said, if they don't want to play with you, that's cool. Do you still want to do it? Yes, I want to do it. I'm like, cool. Who would you like to do it with? Who's going to be happy to come play with you? Because if they don't want to, that's okay. You can invite them to your thing. You cannot not say no. Um, and so last night after we went to bed, I drew up plans for a pitch stand to put in front of our house. He's gone to school with it today. And like, he gets to open up his heart. Um, there's a guy on TikTok. I mean, he's not on TikTok. He's on everything. Gary Vee. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a communications business love him he brings me some crazy joy i've entered the tiktok world for the last year and i'm lost i can't get out i probably spend way too many hours looking at that but he says a thing where it's like you want to be the kid at school that everyone likes and you're being kind to even if you're being bullied even if you're not being nice people aren't being nice to you because later in life that will treat you really well and so i sat with henry in our bed for probably 45 minutes and talked to him about that my son owen comes in and goes i want to know what's going on and sits in that conversation because he doesn't want to get left out but the reality is i think that's what i want to work on i want my kids to understand that being kind being nice doing the right thing and not being appreciated for and not being recognized for it is way more important. I say that's somewhat true in what I'm doing in my industry. I don't need to be recognized out here. I don't need to be known by the chefs. I don't need to even be known by the general public. I know I'm doing the right thing and I'm being the best I can be and we're doing the best we can do out here. And whether that brings accolades, great, good, bad or indifferent, I don't care. And I want that to be the same for him. So I'd say my future is focusing on those things and keeping that north star for what is Coleman Farms and then what is is the Hales household of being good people, doing the right thing as best we can with the limitations we have on a daily basis. Does that answer the question a little bit? That is a beautiful answer. How do you continue to find inspiration every year? I won't say TikTok, right? I shouldn't say TikTok. No, you can. If that... Wouldn't that be great if that was my answer? Yeah. I like TikTok. It brings me a lot of joy for the silliness of TikTok. Um, I mean, I that, I, I've had chefs say Instagram. What's the difference? You know, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I hate to say uh, one thing I haven't mentioned is I have a huge cookbook collection. Um, my mother had one. I joined it with mine. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's probably about 12,500 books. Uh, yeah, like that's that sounds like an easy number to understand, but like I have a library here at the farm and it's only got probably like a tenth of my books. The rest are like squirreled away. 
And so I think my inspiration is reading those. I think Google and searching the internet, as a lot of chefs do nowadays, that is not the way to find fun food things. As much as traveling and seeing other things, there are some great cookbooks that were written in the 70s, 60s, 80s. There are recipes that will never make it to the internet. There are recipes that people will never cook again that are trapped in these books that you'd have to dig out. Um, there are pictures of me out there on the internet with me in the library with stacks of books when somebody has given me their inspiration for their wedding menu. That is so much fun. Um, I'm not, I think I said that I'm not a great writer and I'm also a horrible reader. I've struggled with it all my life. It's just not who I am. I'm a music kid, math brain. Mm-hmm. I'm not a reader. Reading sends me to sleep, but reading cookbooks, I'm there 100% in. And so I think that that is probably one of the the best things that I've done for myself is having that collection to seek into the past. It's really hard when you remember that there's a recipe somewhere in a book, but you have 12 and a half thousand of them. You are not going to find that recipe when you really need it. And then you'll find it seven months after you've done the event and you're trying to remember what it is. But I got to say, like, that is something I wish we as chefs could have more access to out there. Um, Because the public libraries in the U.S. are great. They really are. There's a great one in Chelsea. There's an amazing one in Dexter where we are. But as far as historical or older cookbooks that are out there, they're much harder to come across. And the Internet does not have that stuff. Like, you can Google some really good dishes. There is zero comes up. Now, that's pretty cool. And so I was... uh, Do you remember Chicken Kiev back in the late 90s, early 90s? So... um, some reason somebody asked us to cook it maybe a year ago at the farm and I remember cooking at the beginning of my career and it was already like way boring no one should do it it was the most like it was being sold in the frozen aisle right it was completely not bougie anymore it was boring I did a dinner last night here and um, they had picked chicken yeah awesome I love chicken yeah make a really good compound butter we brine the chicken we stuffed it we did all these things and I went out there and we talk about the menu that they want us to. And it was a birthday. I was like, hey, and we were talking about a group of people. Somebody was like, we're talking like 70 to nine, 70 years old to nine year old in that room. No one knew what a chicken Kiev was. And I was like, what? Like, and one of my first chefs said, the thing that you remember doing at the beginning of your career will be the last thing you do in your career. I'm like, is this it? Is this the moment? <laughs> Am I retiring? Chicken Kiev? Chicken Kiev has brought it back around, right? And I was like, wow. And like something that was super boring in the late 90s. And I'm telling you, I probably saw Chicken Kiev to a few people now. It's such a weird thing to come back. And we've done really bizarre lamb dishes, like a lamb breast dish that's in this wonderful book by Elizabeth David. Uh, Really great French uh, historical book that is published by Penguin. My mom had a paperback version of it. It's completely torn apart. Pages are glued back in, taped back in, stapled back in, in this book. Um, And I think that's fun. Like digging up old things that you think, I I would encourage you or anyone listening to this, like, hey, what do I remember doing when I first started? Is it cool again? Am I ready to do cool again? And uh, I just turned 40 and I was 13. So what, that's 27 year cycle. 27-year cycle for Chicken Kiev to come back and not be known. And people are like, this is delicious. I'm like, it was always delicious. It just got a little boring after a while. 
<laughs> What's happening out in Ann Arbor? The only other chef so far, this podcast is a couple years old, and the only other chef that I've interviewed that was all about old, very old cookbooks was Chef Kim. Which oh, really? I, yes. So Chef Kim is like sourcing, you know, cookbooks from Korea from like 16th century. <laughs> like, what's with you guys? It's awesome. It's the best of thing. It absolutely is. I wish that it was easy to get them now. And it's much harder. I mean, those secondhand bookstores that I would go in and I'd walk out with like 30 books at a time. Right. In London, there's Portobello Road and there's a, a cookbook shop and it's still there. So anyone listening to this and you're going to London, go to Portobello Road. It's Books for Cooks. And they had a little kitchenette inside the bookshop and they would cook recipes from the book. <laughs> so I know I've talked about TikTok. I own uh, the TikTok account that is uh, cooking the books, which sounds like a bad thing, right? It sounds <laughs> yes. like a bad thing. Yes. I'm but reporting I'm, you to Zingerman's. <laughs> there you go. Zingerman's are coming. Uh, my embezzlement is underway. But I wanted to do a TikTok. I have not had the time, right? Busy in the world that you are, where you just take cookbooks and cook recipes from them. It was so great as a kid going in there. And I was a kid when I was 13 in London. And you'd pick out a book and they were making the recipe right there. What a great way to sell a cookbook. I mean, I was all in. And there is like those famous cookbooks uh, where none of the recipes work in them. There's a River Cafe cookbook in London. Uh, the River Cafe. Yeah, yeah. Two lovely ladies. The cookbook is notorious. The recipes don't work, right? And I think that's fun too. Um, I was working with a chef, and I won't mention who it is, and they came out to do a dinner with us, and some people had written the book for that person. And like, I don't remember writing that recipe. I don't know what that was. And I'm like, what? Like, holy smokes. And so like, to think that that's the way some cookbooks are written now and the way they are, to go back to the 1800s and stuff like that. I've got the Queen Elizabeth I chef's cookbook in there, uh, downstairs, and such fun things. I mean, really fun things that are incredibly complicated, and you need to have that culinary history to read those books, mm. because they're sometimes a no wits. It's just a list of ingredients with a suggestion of how to put them together, and it just says, when it's ready, it's ready, and you're like, okay. Cool. I'm going to do some R&D on this one and pull it back. I think it was fun when uh, Heston uh, did a whole thing on historical foods. My business partner brought me that cookbook when that came out years ago. And those are fun when you deep dive into food history. Um, I always remind people this because I'm in the wedding industry. Do you know what the original wedding cake was? No. This is so good. I'm sorry, everyone. It was lamb testicle pie, um, right? And you're like, what? And it was surrounded by mystery pies. And so it was a lamb testicle pie for fertility. And then it was surrounded with mystery pies around it. And then at the wedding, you pick them up. And I'm like, what? How can I pull this off in my business? Like, no one's going to buy this. But what a wonderful way that the wedding cake was born. Um, it's well, like when, you, when you mentioned like fertility, like that obviously, that makes a total sense to me. And honestly, I think you could pull it off because we're in a time where infertility is such an issue, you know, like... You could put a spin on this. The reoccurrence of lamb testicle pie. It's coming back, guys. You yeah. should all be ready. It's <laughs> going to be the new trend in 2030. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I think that those things are fun. Um, especially like deep diving into wedding service. I'm a huge uh, meat pie guy. When I lived in London, I was super poor. I was making no money. I could afford to live where I was and travel to work. And that was about it. And there were um, the taxi rank restaurants. 
and they would serve pie and mash in them. And I do a pie and mash thing here out at the farm. And uh, it's like home cooked food for me. It's what I remember eating growing up as a 13 year old in London was all these meat pies with mashed potatoes. And so it's kind of fun to have that cycle back, but that's part of my wedding industry. And there's a guy in London, uh, Holborn restaurant. He has a pie ring. That man is living one version of my life that I wish I had. He has a dedicated room just to make pies in his restaurant. I'm like, that man is living the dream of happiness of making pies. Because it's like making a pativier, you know, when you have that perfectly made puff pastry and you score the egg and it raises up beautifully. And it's something that like takes a lot of time to create. And there's that baking time of like 45 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes. And does it all come together or does it all fall apart? It's uh, the magic of making sausage, right? You take these very disparate ingredients, right. you bring them together and you've got this amazing thing from something you're like, wow, how did this come from that? Um, it's that magic of bread baking the same way. But yeah, if, if again, you're in London, I'm sending everyone to London today apparently, yeah. but there's a restaurant called Holborn and it is amazing, his meat pies. He does a really good beef wellington there too. Awesome. <laughs> Have there ever been any signs or synchronicities in your life that led to new opportunities for you in this industry? If so, please describe the moment. Yeah, I think it's the tough and trying to focus on uh, the tough moments in life. You talked about the struggles, um, the magnitude of things that have happened to me when my um, father passed away. I lost my mother before I had kids, which was really hard. Because, you know, you want your mum to meet your kids, but then there's no good point for them not to be there. Like, my mum meeting my brand new baby wouldn't be that cool. I'd like her to be there first day of school and then the first day of secondary school and all those things. I think what I've seen is those, those moments of awakening and seeing more of the forest than the trees uh, have been big moments for me. And the people I connect have had a lot of those things happen in their lives. Not bad, but like tough things, big changes that have happened and that they've reacted to them in a good way because you could go a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and God knows those are easy places to go, to go to the bad side of something tough happening to you. I have a pretty positive outlook on death and it's, it's an absolute, it's happening. And it's just a stepping stone for you and your death will be a stepping stone for somebody else. And that's cool. Um, I think that the struggles um, are really what are needed to have the good life and to have another struggle. I'm expecting another bad thing to happen. And it's not a bad thing, it's just a thing. And it's never a bad, it's just that I can't see far enough out to see the future. One of the managing partners at the uh, deli uh, called Rick Strutz uh, says to me regularly, you know, I'm just a little further down the road. He's a little bit older than me. Rick, you're only a little bit older than me. And he constantly tells me like things that he's seen that you want to look out for that are coming down that road at you and you want to know that are there. And for me, I think those struggles that we all go through at different stages in our lives are defining moments, but make them good things. And so I think turning a bad into a good, that it's never really bad, it's just a step. I think those have been very true to my life, continue to be true to my life. Um, try to remind my kids of it. Um, I, my Owen is a hard kid. He's a, a fighter, a struggler. Um, he will build up that brick wall and protect himself. My older kid is a little bit more emotional. And he can get sad when I talk about my mother. I'm like, there's nothing to be sad. 
you wouldn't be here without all of this story happening and how exciting that is. And um, I think that if we could be more accepting, and I, failure is the wrong word. I use it because of the lean and my desire of that mindset. But that bad thing is like a failure thing. And like, let's celebrate this tough moment because it's going to teach us something really valuable if we can open up our eyes and see it. And some things are really too hard for some people and you can go a different place. I've been really lucky that I haven't. Um, but when we see those people struggling like that, I think our responsibility as other humans is to get up there and help them. And so uh, in our industry, we get to time travel people back to their childhood, create new moments. We sometimes deal with people who've had horrible culinary histories um, when they're getting married. They've never really had a fond food memory. We get to start that, right? On their wedding day or on a birthday. I'm like, great, we're gonna create what you're excited about. You're gonna look back as this is the beginning of your culinary fun time of what it is. Um, so yeah, I think that the struggle isn't the struggle, it's just the step. A flow state, also known as being in the zone, is the mental state when a person is performing an activity and is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, clarity, enjoyment in the entire process. It doesn't feel like work. It's effortless attention that you're giving the activity. It's really a euphoric feeling. And it's during this altered state of consciousness that your mind functions at its peak and a sense of happiness flows through your body. For you, it could be during service, perhaps. I did read in a previous interview that you considered your sanctuary to be any kitchen before or after others come in when there's calm and silence. So for you, it could be connected to that environment. I'm wondering, as a chef, have you ever reached this state? If you have, please describe your surroundings leading up to it and what it felt like being in this state. Yeah, I think it's actually, uh, I think the kitchen's a really good one. Like that gentle hum of refrigeration when no one else is there at the beginning or the end, and it can be both, is very calming to me, and I like that. But that moment of utter joy uh, where nothing is hard or difficult is when a dish has come together perfectly. Um, uh, I make the joke, you only sing when you're winning in the kitchen. And I worked in a lot of silent kitchens where you weren't allowed to talk. And so my kitchen isn't that, but it's not necessarily the noisiest kitchen you've ever walked into either. But sometimes when you hear me come service time and I'm losing my mind a little bit and singing, is the pure joy of how great that dish is. Somebody might take it and the customer might like it and I can live with that. I know how perfect it is. Like it is better than I've ever cooked it. It is in that really happy place. It came from this farm or it came out of the ground that day or what those elements were. We were making uh, herb roasted tomatoes last night. All of the herbs came right out in front of the garden. That is, it was easy and it wasn't hard. Um, we have that journey through the kitchen where you're just sliding through multitasking. There's no such thing as multitasking, everyone likes to say. When you've got like nine things on the go and nothing falls, it all stays perfectly up. Oh, that is like pure heaven. Like you know, even the service side, but like being able to hold all that together and it's like magic. And we had a new uh, head chef join us recently. And he makes fun of me because I can hold all those things in the air confidently, regularly. And it brings me such joy, not because of being able to do it, because it's very calming. Because I'm using every possible moment to its maximum, 
doing the best thing I can with that food at the max, taking it to the limit of service. Oh, should I blanch it now? Or am I gonna hold back? I'm gonna hold back, I'm gonna hold back a little bit longer. Oh my God, that, that sensation, the endorphins that go off at that moment are great, especially when it's connected with the things we've grown or that we've had real connection with them. We at the farm don't grow all of our stuff. We don't want to grow all of our stuff. There are great farmers around us. Michigan is an amazing piece of farmland. And so I'm just as excited to not have screwed up, you know, that chicken that we had raised down the street for us and it came out perfectly. And then we used everything. Last night we were making uh, corn syrup out of the center of corn husks. And uh, one of the line cooks was with us, Brennan. And I was like, this is so amazing. Smell that corn syrup. We'll turn it into a cocktail. I have no idea what we're gonna use this for, but somebody had to grow this. They put it in the seed. They had to water it. They had to look after this plant. Sure, we wanted the kernels, but that center cob, we're not gonna use that. We're gonna make this to them. That is like, oh, happy day. And like, they look at me like I'm a crazy man. And that's cool, I'm okay. I can be the crazy person in that moment, but like, yeah, those are those really happy, magical moments. But yeah, if you want the calm, Kieran, oh, empty, quiet kitchen with the hum of a, a refrigerator or a freezer in there before the hoods have turned on, that slight flicker of the pilot lights, oh, that's so good. <laughs> but I'll take singing, Kieran, too, because that means <laughs> that magic is happening. So Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Sing when you're winning. It's a good one. Hold on to it. <laughs> Well, Chef Hales, thank you for sharing your story with us. As you know, I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. It's on the path that we learn, evolve, and encounter lessons that shape us into our best selves. I always like ending the podcast by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something that we just discussed, a lesson you've learned on your journey journey or general life advice that you live by uh, this will surprise Ari uh, maybe it won't anymore take a minute pick up a book and read it no matter what it is I gotta say the world's changing and we don't do that enough um, I was a terrible reader and my kids I won't let them be and so we read every night and we do it it's probably the hardest thing I do I don't I, I truly struggle with reading. It's just not been a fun thing for me from a childhood. We could go into that differently, but I'd recommend pick up a book and read it and doesn't matter what it is. Read it all the way through, put down those other distractions. There's something very liberating in them. Make it about food, for sure. Make it about a cookbook, for sure. But I think that that's doing that in front of other people makes that the norm again and will bring that back. And there is such knowledge trapped in books that will never make it to the world if we don't read them. And I'm not talking about new novels. I'm talking about that used bookshop. Go in there, buy a whole bunch and burn through them. There's such fun knowledge out there that is getting lost. And um, I would do that in a heartbeat. And that sounds like an odd thing no. from everything we've talked about. Um, it's a piece of joy I probably found only in the last five or six years. Um, and I read business books, I read, read comedy books, I read sci-fi, I love sci-fi, and I read sci-fi books all day long. Um, but actually reading a cookbook, like all the bits in it, because most of us skim through those things, skim through the beginning, skim through the end, you're just trying to find the recipe, take a minute. And it's like read a recipe from top to bottom before you start doing it, take a minute and read it. Somebody 
took their time of their life to write that. And I think that we owe those authors, the people who published it, the time to read them. Mm. Great. I love that. Love it. Well, I think I already know the answer. It might be TikTok, but where can people follow you? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, if you go on my TikTok, it's really funny. I've got like bunny prints with flower dusted in my house. Uh, for the Easter Bunny. There's weird things on my TikTok. Maybe no one should go there. Um, I think that the the best place to follow us um, is probably our Instagram as far as the business. We've got a lot of cooking videos in there. You can see my home kitchen. Uh, we've done recipes where we've recorded how to make some of the things I love the most. Um, but yeah, you should go on the TikTok. I, it will be something else at some point. Um, that guy Gary V talks about it like it's currently what's in. And that's cool. And if that's where we're going to find people and get people to connect and tell them our stories and share them, uh, I guess I'm going to go make a TikTok after this tonight about something. But it's fun. And I think uh, for me, come to our website. There's lots of recipes out there. Email us to our main inbox. I'm terrible at responding to emails. So feel free to email the main inbox. Email Tabitha. (laughs) Email Tabitha. That's the joy, right? And Tabitha hears that all the time. But the reality is there is nothing we won't share you. If you wanted to know the finances of the business. You want to know our recipes. You want to know any, nothing is secret. I lived in as a pastry chef for a while and everything is secret. Do not tell anyone, keep the method secret. I used to have recipes where there was something wrong with the recipe on every recipe. So no one could steal them from me. And that is so stupid. Um, I've definitely become a liberator of any information I have. It is open source and take it. So I would say if you want to connect with us, reach out to us we would share it with you there are people that do that there are people don't you might think about hearing this that you wouldn't take a minute send the email we'll do something it'll be a moment to connect with another human being and that's a great thing oh that's an awesome thing all right well thanks for listening and if you haven't already follow have you eaten yet wherever you get your podcasts